I think I still actually do wear ridiculous clothing um, quite regularly. I think the only difference is I just, it's on purpose now. I own it. I love it. And I do it because I want to do it and not because I'm trying to fit in or please other people. And I think that's the difference. You're listening to In the Pocket, a podcast brought to you by the National Filipino American Lawyers Association. After a long winter break, we're bringing you a conversation with Anna Clark, a partner with Phillips and Lytle in New York, whose compassion and warmth stem from growing up in a dichotomy of cultures. She represents this duality in her sartorial choices, blending traditional and indigenous Filipiniana with a modern professional silhouette. She manages this all while leading her practice group, being an adjunct professor and an awesome mom. We hope you enjoy Anna's interview with Pocket Sister Heidi hennig We are um, excited to do this interview. Of course, I've known you for some years now, and I am honored to count you among my friends. But of course, the reason I love you is because you're fun and you're kind and you're such a good person. It wasn't until I started preparing for this podcast that I realized how accomplished you are in addition to all of that. So I found out that you are the leader of Philip Lytle's data security, privacy, e-discovery, and digital forensics practice teams. You're a former assistant district attorney, so you still handle white-collar criminal matters and investigations. You have multiple accolades and recognitions, including preeminent certifications for your work with U.S. and European data protection laws. And on top of it all, you're a fashion icon in our (laughs) Filipino lawyers community at a minimum, if not beyond. So it would obviously be very easy to look at you and think it all just came so easy for you. So we'd love to hear about your journey to where you are now and your thoughts about that journey. So I guess if we start really at the beginning, were you born and raised here in the United States? Um, first of all, before I answer that question, I want to thank you for those kind words. And I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm going to resist doing what I want to do, which is to be self-deprecating because I try to to teach the younger attorneys not to do that, especially the women. So I'm just going to take the compliment and I'm going right. to own, own it. it. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you. So no, I was born in the Philippines and raised there. I moved here in 1993 after I graduated sixth grade in the Philippines. And so I started seventh grade in the United States. And then uh, I think in combination with my age and they gave me an aptitude test, they decided I could skip to the eighth grade. So um, so no, I was not born and raised here. I was uh, actually raised in the Philippines. What was your mindset coming here? You know, I did not want to come here, and uh, and I, until we arrived, I kept thinking it's not really going to happen. It just seems so sudden. You know, in the Philippine culture, no one asks the kids what they want, so we were not part of the decision-making process. I was kind of just told I was going to come here, and I went to a school in the Philippines, which is the government school, and so they're big on nationalism, and uh, actually, as I was growing up, there was a lot of discussion uh, about the brain drain that was going on in the Philippines, which started in the 80s and was very much rampant in the 90s when I moved. And there was a sense that if you left the Philippines, you were contributing to that brain drain and that was somehow unpatriotic. So I really had very conflicting feelings coming here. I did not have any friends here, no family or cousins my age, uh, or really any family, um, even adult um, relations. And so it was a difficult transition. 
Uh, and then when I started school, I went to a Catholic school where there were only 16 students in the eighth grade, and they all grew up together because they went to that school for kindergarten. And so I was bullied because I was the new kid. And it was so easy to do that because I was also kind of uh, a little bit odd. I think I took pride in not fitting in. So I would wear these ridiculous, non-fashionable outfits uh, because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And that's what you're supposed to look like uh, if you're supposed to be a smart person. <laughs> so if you have any pictures of those ridiculous outfits, I'd <laughs> sure like to see those. <laughs> Because nothing you wear these days looks ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, that does sound like a pretty dramatic move. Why did your family move to the United States? So, you know, that's an interesting story. My mother was a nurse and she had no intention of coming here, but she happened to attend a job fair to accompany a friend. And she got recruited instead of her friend because she had uh, past some of these kind of standardized tests that were very difficult. And so she decided to try it out just for a couple of years. And she would come back to the Philippines every year to visit us until eventually she decided that there were more opportunities here for her and for us. And we decided to to move. And join her here. That's right. So at the time, it was me and my uh, younger sister who lived in the Philippines, along with our dad. And then my brother was... Uh, was already living here. He was born here. And, uh, and so then we moved when my sister was five and I was about 11 years old. So, I mean, at, at this point, you're clearly not wearing ridiculous outfits anymore. And you clearly seem to, I guess I'll say fit in um, with the American culture and that kind of thing. So how did you go from being this sort of young immigrant girl who really didn't know her way around to to where you are today. So I think I still actually do wear ridiculous clothing um, <laughs> quite regularly. I think the only difference is I just, it's on purpose now. I own it. I love it. And I do it because I want to do it and not because I'm trying to fit in or please other people. And I think that's the difference. So when I went to college, I went to Rutgers, which has a large Asian uh, population, and in particular, a large Filipino American and Filipino population. So uh, I began to participate in the activities. We used to do a burial fiesta every year, which would consist of a play, essentially a musical. And so I helped write that and then eventually acted, <laughs> acted in it. I'm regretting sharing this with you because I'm now afraid that videos are going to surface <laughs> after this podcast. And uh, and then I ran for vice president and ultimately president of the organization. And I think at that point, I started feeling like I had people, a group of people who understood at least some of my journey and who could relate to it and uh, and who wanted to be friends with me and share those experiences. So, you know, that was the beginning of the journey, but it wasn't really until I got to law school that I felt really comfortable in my own skin. And, uh, you know, and that's when I started kind of caring more about what I wear and how I look, uh, because I had the freedom to do that, because now I wasn't trying to be something just to fit in. I kind of, I kind of was just fortunate I think, to have found a community in law school that didn't care about 
all that baggage and everyone had their own stories and their own struggles and everyone was more mature than, you know, the people I was surrounded with growing up. So I thought that was great. And that's a function of age, not so much the people, <laughs> the people that I surrounded myself growing up, which is, uh, you know, uh, it comes with age. In terms of, you know, trying to dress a certain way to fit in and then ultimately feeling like you were liberated from that mindset, I think you matured faster than I did. Because I know even in law school, but especially when I started the practice of law, like I intentionally dressed homely and sort of really downplayed my look. So so that's a good point. Uh, even though I, I guess even though I was more comfortable in, in my skin at the time, you know, by the time I got to law school, I do think there was a, 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 a huge, um, well, I, I think I had the same reservations that you did, which is, you know, will people take me seriously? And how do I present myself? And how do I speak? And, you know, all of that um, stuff. And I, I, I have to say now I don't struggle with that as much as I used to. Um, because I feel that now I have, because I have worked so hard up until this point in my career, that I've earned the right to dress certain ways and present myself a certain way. Um, and so, you know, obviously I won't wear what you will still traditionally consider inappropriate, you know, for court or anything <laughs> like that. But I, I, you know, I also feel like I can have more fun now uh, than I used to be able to. You know, because I'm sort of this petite Asian thing and I didn't think people would take me seriously. I remember even telling a partner one time, I don't want to, I don't want clients to meet me for the first time in person. I'd rather have them meet me over the phone first so that they can hear me and you know their impressions of me will be formed just based on what I'm saying as opposed to how I look. And it really caught me off guard when the partner kind of paused and said, I think that's a mistake. I think it would actually be better if clients met you in person for the first time and saw who you are. Um, so do you think it is important for, you know, young Filipino, Filipina practitioners to sort of earn the right to be who they are first before they kind of show their true colors or, um, or should they start that a little bit earlier? You know, that's a very good question. And I wonder, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers and I wonder if that's also a generational thing because I do work with a lot of newer associates now, younger attorneys. And I'm always amazed at how, uh, how much more assertive they are, how comfortable they are to let their opinions be heard, even if it could be perceived as perhaps, you know, potentially offensive, if they think they're right, and their moral compass is telling them this is what is the correct thing to do. I find that they tend to voice their opinions. Uh, kind of much more willingly than I would have at, at that stage of my career. And so I don't know that you necessarily have to earn it, um, but that was certainly how I felt when I was going through this process. So everyone's journey is going to be different. And I also think that it will largely depend on your community. And that includes your personal uh, contacts and friends and professional network, but also the kind of organization that you work in. Uh, so there are a lot of different factors because if you're working with an older or, you know, uh, so if you're working with somebody who comes from a generation that's very buttoned up and expects a certain 
uh, a certain way that attorneys will look or speak, then on some level, because we're in a service industry, you have to cater to that. And the question is, how do you do that while balancing the need to be yourself? Well, and so that's a great question. <laughs> do you have an answer for that? I know my sister would tell me, honestly, there is never a time or a place for Homely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, do you have any thoughts about how to strike that balance between um, sort of professionalism and and being you? I still struggle with that sometimes, although now, you know, it, I'll give you a, a very will seem like a vapid example, but, you know, holiday parties, for example, right? Attending your client's holiday party. I wouldn't go all out and wear my, the sequined outfit that I would perhaps want to wear, but maybe I'll do a little polish. I'll do a little, you know, sparkly shoe, uh, a little red lipstick. So I think you can infuse touches of your personality into a more professional package when the situation calls for it. But you don't have to suppress your personality wholesale, which I think a lot of us did kind of coming up in the law. Right, especially having an immigrant background and wanting to fit in and things like that. But I would say that what I've observed of you is I think one of the reasons you pull it off so gracefully is because you have a lot of grace. You wear things that none of the rest of us could really pull off. But, you know, you with your grace and your poise, it sort of brings that professionalism to it. So um, I guess that, that would be my two cents on watching you and seeing how you do it. <laughs> I think you're, uh, well, thank you, but I think you're selling yourself short. I think um, anyone can do it. Uh, I just happen to have a high tolerance for embarrassment. <laughs> so I speak on a lot of conferences and webinars. and. I have committed, even though I didn't do it this last go around, to wearing more Filipina, Filipiniana and Filipino wear instead of a suit for those events, even if they're not geared towards the Asian community. And, uh, you know, that's something else that I, you know, another way that I think I'm incorporating fashion into my professional life and kind of allowing that my Filipino side to influence my professional side a little bit more. So why I, I love it, but you know what made you decide to do that, and how has that been received? So I started thinking. So I um, I work with Pineapple IND. They make barongs, and the proprietor is a friend of mine. And he asked me when he was launching his brand if I could model a barong for him. And of course, I said yes because I wanted to support my friend, but also I thought his idea, which was to um, to, to encourage more everyday wear of uh, Filipiniana attire and barongs was a really great one. And there are other cultures in the United States that own that, that wear their traditional wear uh, in, in everyday life. And so I really, that resonated with me. And so during the pandemic, you know, um, we all have a lot of time on our hands and we have a lot of the, a lot of the conferences and the panels are now online and their webinars. And so, you know, I started to think about how can you spice it up? How can you make it a little bit more interesting for me and for the people who are watching the, the webinar and at the same time, honor who I am, which is, you know, I'm a Filipina American woman. And I don't want to hide that. And I don't want to make that the centerpiece either. But 
I want to marry those two things because they're a big part of who I am. And so, you know, I started wearing barongs and uh, and ternos, which are the traditional Filipiniana wear with the butterfly sleeves. And, you know, I thought that was really great because Usually you can only see your shoulders and your head in these, you know, uh, <laughs> panels anyway. And so I, I just started wearing that and I thought it was appropriate because it was formal in the in the same way that a suit would be. And actually the, the response has been quite positive. People have asked me about it quite a lot and it's become a, a point of discussion either before, even during or after a panel. So. I think it's it's been a really great way to introduce our culture to people who might not be familiar with it. And even when I'm walking down the street in New York City, people will compliment it, even though they don't understand it and they don't know where it's from. And I take that opportunity to, to tell them. And so, you know, it's my little advocacy, I guess. <laughs> oh, I love it. I think um, I think we actually have it good as women in terms of the flexibility that we have when it comes to formal wear, you know, it doesn't have to be the same prescription of a suit and a tie. You can t- kind of take some liberties. But I really like that combination of, uh, you know, we were talking about how do you strike the balance? And, you know, it sounds like one of the ways to strike the balance is to find elements of the culture that you can elevate in a professional way. And um, who knows, you know, in this day and age, we might even have more ability to do that. I feel like there's much more openness and um, acceptance of, of culture and the way people do things. So this might be exactly the time to try some of these things. So during the pandemic, I started thinking about Thernos and, uh, and, and Philippine wear. And fortunately, a lot of our young designers are now on Instagram. And you can just reach out to them and contact them directly when if you see something that you like, which I've been doing over the past few months, probably a little too much. And a lot of them have actually been open with collaborating. And so if I have an idea, they make it come to life. And it's been such a fun way to to express myself and also at the same time, kind of honor our heritage. So I've been uh, ordering a lot from Marco Filipino, and he's a he's a young up and coming designer in in the Philippines, and his specialty is is ternos, so the tops and dresses with the butterfly sleeves. I also order quite a bit from Edgar Buyan. He's based out of Davao, and he has these great banig prints. And you know, I uh, purchased some masks and some dresses uh, from him. And, you know, it looks like you're wearing a benig, which is kind of a fun take. And then... So literally uh, you're buying from the Philippines here in in New York? That's exactly <laughs> right. And, and I, you know, and, and then I do share those outfits on my social media. And now some of my friends are ordering from those same designers, which is really fantastic because wow. a lot of them have been struggling during the pandemic. And so this is... Um, you know, this is just a, a great way for me to introduce kind of two loves of my life, the the people I work with on the fashion side and the people who are my friends in, in my you know regular life. And then uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention Pineapple IND once again, because I do think they're based in New, in New York, but they uh, get the barongs made in the Philippines. So it's a good way to support our communities in the Philippines, our artisans over there. And then the last one is Linai, uh, 
that's L-I-N.A-Y. She is uh, also a designer based in the Philippines and she specializes in barongs, actually, female barongs, and she can uh, customize them for you. Okay, so has anybody invented a barong that doesn't wrinkle yet? Because <laughs> that's what I need. I mean, because I don't know how you, how you keep them looking so smashing all the time. I always feel like fine look smashed. <laughs> but, I just uh, pretend it's part of it. No, so there's some uh, materials <laughs> I think that are less uh, that are more wrinkle resistant. So I'll send you some some links. Yeah, send me some suggestions. It's like the linen of the Philippines, you know, like, <laughs> what the heck's up with that? Um, so we talked about some of the influences, you know, in, in your fashion love. Um, how about some of your influences from a professional perspective? So when I was a law, so initially, I thought I was going to be a doctor, like all of us did, I'm sure. My father was a physician, my mother was a nurse, I studied biology in college, actually. and I was preparing to take the MCATs when I decided to take the LSATs. And I got the results back before I had to take the MCATs and decided, you know, this might be, these scores might be high enough to uh, to get to, into a decent law school. So let's try that. So I applied and I started at Fordham Law and I joined the Mood Court team. And Professor Marcus, who is a, um, a prolific Supreme Court advocate, so she had appeared before before the Supreme Court uh, on or various oral arguments multiple times, led the Mood Court team. And sh- to this day, she's still an inspiration to me. I think she is just such a uh, force and she's so smart and yet she treats everyone around her with respect. And, you know, she, uh, I met her at a time when I didn't have a lot of female role models and I didn't have a lot of girl bosses or lady bosses that was not a thing right back when we were in law school and i think she, i think she was that before that was a thing and then as i progressed i uh i considered judge denny chin of the second circuit one of my mentors and he his wife kathy chin is you know just blew my mind she's uh just as accomplished and so funny and so witty and so you know, I love Judge Chen and I still consider him one of my heroes, but now I don't know. I kind of, I've kind of switched to Team Kathy. So, uh, you know, I love them both, but she's also kind of uh, somebody I, I look up to and, and I, I'm really inspired by. And of course, my, my Enfala sisters, I, you know, I communicate with you guys quite a bit. You, June, Jonah, Christy, I love that we can talk about really serious matters, you know, politics of the day, legal issues, all the way to the most frivolous uh, things like concealer and eyeshadow. (laughs) Who talks about that? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you guys, uh, we we need to help each other out in every, every aspect. So in terms of the data privacy work that you do in particular, how did you get interested in that? So I really enjoyed mood court. In fact, I think I was the only one in my class who did as many mood court competitions as I did. I did Thomas Tank twice. So that's two regional competitions and the national competition. And then I also owned it twice based on what (laughs) I've heard. (laughs) So congratulations. Thank you. I really, obviously, I really enjoyed it. 
And I also did the IBM sponsored Cardozo mood court competition. And I just really, really loved it. And I asked some of my mentors about what possible career path I could take because I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't really know any lawyers at the time. And they said, what do you like to do? And I said, I really like being in court. I love oral arguments. And so they almost unanimously recommended going to the DA's office because the DA's office was the place sure. that I could get the most experience at a young age, you know, even as I am new in my career. And you really get to take ownership of cases. So I ended up in the district attorney's office where I handled anything from misdemeanors to, you know, attempted murders and, and sexual crimes. And then I thought, I'm not sure that I want to commit to this career for the rest of my life because I thought it was too young in my career to decide this is what I want to do because I don't know anything else, especially because I didn't know any other lawyers before I went to law school. So I went to a law firm, uh, not the firm I'm with now, but another law firm. And while I was there, I was there for about two years. And while I was there, I was recruited by this firm. And that's how I ended up doing commercial litigation, which I still do and I still enjoy. But I um, ended up, this is a very long-winded explanation, but I ended up on a case with huge amounts of data, terabytes and terabytes of data in the um, early 2010s when, you know, that was still a relatively new thing, at least for, for litigation. And because I was so involved in my client's data, I just became the go-to person for my clients whenever they had questions about what to do with their data. And so I had to learn that information and how to provide guidance on that front because it was so closely intertwined with uh, with my litigation and e-discovery work. And so it was an, a very natural progression and, and quite uh, organic, actually. Well, kudos to you. Some folks, when faced with terabytes and terabytes of digital information and things like that, would run the other way <laughs> <laughs> and leave it to someone else. But I do think, and I try to tell younger lawyers, you know, if you have a, a case or a matter that you're working on and maybe you don't love it for some reason, dive in. You know, there'll be something good that comes of it. And who knows if it could be a launching pad to something that you do love. So, you know, dive yeah. in, own it and, um, you know, see where it takes you. I agree um, with that. And I know a lot of the younger associates think, oh, e-discovery, I don't want to review documents. It's the worst. It's so unimportant. And I try to tell them it's really the best way that you can contribute to a team when you are a new attorney, right? You're not going to be the legal genius who's going to figure out a defense or a claim that everybody else missed. But you're going to be the person who knows that case in and out. You're going to know the documents, you know, like the back of your hand. And you're going to be the go-to person if you do it right and you leverage that, you can be the go-to person for the people who are the legal geniuses, the people who are more senior, exactly, and the clients. And you'll be just as important, if not more so, depending on the type of case, because you're the one who knows everything. And so I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And then that's how they can add value at a young age. So um, yeah, they have... Oh, Younger lawyers and practitioners, and really in other careers, you know, you have to learn how to take advantage of opportunities. So, I mean, speaking of, you um, are you still teaching at Fordham? 
I am. So I actually started teaching a couple of years ago. I, you know, around the same time that I started thinking about fashion and my Filipino identity, I also started thinking about how I wish I knew people who look like us when I was going through that journey. And how can I be that person for other people? I don't mean to say I think I should be a role model or anything like that, but I definitely have made a lot of mistakes and I can at the very least help people avoid the same mistakes that I did or, you know, also offer my ear and offer to listen to, you know, uh, newer attorneys or up and coming attorneys aspirations and maybe give them some advice on how best to achieve that. So that's how I ended up teaching. I reached out to a professor and I said, you know, I'm thinking about this. And it turns out they had been looking for adjuncts. He sent my information around. And so before he actually responded to me, other professors had reached out to me to see if I wanted to come in to talk to them about, <laughs> about the classes that were open. And so I started teaching fundamental lawyering skills. And because I'm so involved in APALSA at Fordham, I encourage the members of APALSA to take my class. And, uh, and as Which far means as I they know, have to, because in the culture, <laughs> if, if you're encouraged by an elder, better see you there. <laughs> I, um, you know, and, and as far as I know, I'm the only, uh, I'm the only Asian American who's teaching this particular course. There are a few adjuncts who teach it. And so, you know, I think it, it's good because it gives a perspective to the students that they might not otherwise have. And, uh, and now Forda, and then last year, Fordham approached me to teach a data security and privacy course. So I, um, I helped develop that and we launched it this semester and I'm in the middle of the semester now, actually. So it's been a really great, uh, great experience. It takes a lot of time. And it's hard, but it's so rewarding, especially when the students get it and they appreciate the effort. Well, I, I think it's great that Fordham has reached out and giving you this opportunity. Um, I, not that you need validation, but it is validation that, you know, um, especially from an immigrant background, but women, Asian women, um, you're still young. We're going to call ourselves still young here. I approve of this <laughs> can motion. Have, <laughs> can have really respected positions and be recognized by very, you know, high profile organizations. So I think that's great that you're you're in that position and that you do serve as a role model and example of of what what we can do of with what ourselves. not to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I was going to ask you how you have time to do all of this, but that would just make me feel bad. <laughs> so. I actually do have follow New York attorneys also appear during my lectures and do exercises with my students, you know, in the same way that I want them to see me as representative of our profession. I want them to know, I want all my students to know I'm not the only one. There are a lot of us who have achieved right. various levels of success in our particular industries and practice areas. And so I have invited, you know, the one that I'm thinking of most recently is Drew Villacastin, who's the president of Fala New York and who recently became partner at Boys Schiller. And so I have him come in and because it's a skills class, we do mock interviews of witnesses and mock negotiations. And I think it's a great way to not only introduce uh, 
attorneys of color to the students, but also it's a great way to showcase our skills that we are, uh, you know, successful for a reason. Yeah. So um, the Follow New York organization, tell us about that. You've been pretty active in that. Yes, actually, I was one of the founding members of Follow New York. Many years ago, there is an informal Filipino attorney email list, and the group would get together for meals at various Filipino restaurants around the city. And at a, at a certain point around the time that Enfala was being established, we in New York thought we should also make the same effort to establish a New York. Uh, Filipino American Lawyers Association. And so about seven of us got together and we kind of started getting the ball rolling and established the organization. And I'm so happy and proud that it's still going today and going strong with the infusion of new members, new attorneys, and younger attorneys who are keeping that legacy alive. So I um, was the organization's inaugural vice president. My the president wow. for my year was Rio Guerrero. And then I know I, Rio. <laughs> everyone knows Rio. You might have seen his commercial. I, I tease him about that a lot. <laughs> and uh, and then I now sit on the board. And I have on and off uh, for the past few years because, you know, whenever they call upon me to be kind of the uh, OG or, uh, you know, to offer the perspective of the founding members or the more mature members uh, or older members of the organization, I'm happy to oblige. So I, I, wow. uh, so yeah. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that you were one of the founding members. Um, how big is Fallen New York today? Do you know? That's a good question. I want to say that our membership is probably about 70 strong and we have, but our events are always attended by around a hundred people or more. And so I was going to say, sure I've seen those question. events. I'm, uh, I'm jealous of those. It always looks like a <laughs> giant gala. So <laughs> I'm going to have to score an invite to one of those at some point. Oh, you're always welcome. We are a fun bar and, you know, we really treat ourselves, treat each other like family, which I really appreciate. We don't, I'm so proud of the group because I can honestly say when we have beef, it's never a big you know, it's never too dramatic or too serious. And we nip it in the bud. We do, we address it with each other directly. And we generally, you know, don't, we try actively not to engage in kind of that cheese misculture. And, uh, and I think it's worked out really well for us. And if we're, you know, we're going to fight it out like brothers and sisters on our board calls, but then we'll go out for a beer after, you know, so uh, it's, there's a lot of love there. I really appreciate that, that group. And it's been a jumping off point for me for being on the Enfala board as well. So I'm an at-large trustee this year. And also um, to the Napaba board, I'm on the Napaba board as the Northeast Regional Governor for, for this year and next. So it's been just really great. I've expanded kind of my professional bar family, but, uh, Follow New York has a special place in my heart. Yeah, um, I would totally agree. I mean, um, between the lawyers I know in uh, Follow New York to the lawyers at Follow Chicago and the larger and Follow organization, it is a huge family. And it's, it's just wonderful to be surrounded by people who can identify with you, who understand the challenges that you face as a lawyer, 
and can celebrate your successes, but also like understand why you wake up and you want to eat Filipino breakfast, <laughs> you know, and fried egg and rice and and some sort of delicious sausage or longanisa. So a hundred percent, it's nice and, to have that community. And and everyone's always down to karaoke. And I'm going to give a shout out <laughs> to my sister June Castlemere, who's also my partner in crime when it comes to karaokeing. She raps and I do the melody, but she raps much better than I sing. So there's that. Well, maybe we should add that to the next podcast. We can, we can, you two can rap that, rap and sing that one out. Um, but I guess to sort of close this out, we can come full circle. I mean, we sort of started in the Philippines. Um, do you ever get back to the Philippines? And, you know, what's, what's that like for you? I do, actually. I probably go a little bit more often now than I used to because I have more resources. I can pay for my own ticket. Whereas when I was a kid, I had to scrape and save or beg <laughs> to, to be That's able expensive. to afford. expensive. Yeah. It is. And and also my uh, relatives in the Philippines are are getting to be a little bit older. And so I want to make sure that I spent as much time with them as I can. And, uh, and so I do go back and the experience has changed over time quite dramatically in the beginning. You know, when I first moved to America, perhaps because I was so unprepared and because I was so young, I felt like an outsider. I didn't feel like I belonged. I was definitely the Filipino. That's how I thought people looked at me. And, and especially when I was being bullied in grammar school, uh, you know, that was confirmation for me that I didn't belong. I, I'm not one of them. So I kept thinking, I, if only I could go back to the Philippines, if only I could go back to the Philippines. Finally, I had the opportunity to go back. I did go back for a few months in high school. And although my friends there were warm and they're nice, they started calling me Am Girl. And that was such a mm. shock to me because this entire time I kept thinking, I'm Filipina, I'm Filipina. I, was, I didn't even listen to any American radio. I had my cassette tapes of OPMs, of original Pinoy music playing 24-7. Yes. And they called you Am Girl as in American Girl? Yes. And, you know, I didn't know what that meant until I, and I had to ask. I said, I don't know what you mean by that. And so I was so disappointed at the time because I kept thinking all this time that I was in the United States for these however many years, I kept thinking, I don't belong here. I'm not American. I'm Filipino only to realize that the people that I was aligning myself with didn't consider me as one of their own. And it wasn't necessarily malicious. I just, to them, I just looked different. I spoke differently. I had a different view of the world. I was more outspoken. And so I can understand that as well. And so it's been a struggle. And I think to this day, that tension between what is Filipino and Filipino-American, where does one stop and the other begin, is still very much alive in our community. Uh, you know, this this debate over the use of Philippine X as a term, you know, every time I see a discussion on that, I see very clear demarcations of Filipinos who are in America versus Filipinos who are in the Philippines. But even among Filipinos in America, there are many different layers, as I'm sure, you know, you have experienced yourself. Yeah, I know my mother. So my mother came to the United States for the first time when she was 24. And I know that about the time that, you know, she was turning 48 and 50, she realized that she had now been in the United States longer than she had ever been in the Philippines. And yet she still didn't feel fully American 
but also still didn't feel, you know, fully Filipino. And so it was this straight sort of strange sense of, you know, like a woman with no country, a, a sense of not really belonging in one place or the other and, and wondering. But um, I know for her, and it sounds like for you, having these organizations where you're surrounded by similar people, you know, like our Enfala group or some of her friends that are similarly situated, that has has helped. I mean, do you find that to be the case too? Oh, 100%. And now I think there is a benefit to having people in your family, you know, your professional family, your personal circle of friends who have these different perspectives, because it really enriches the discussions around how certain messages are perceived, how certain programs may be perceived by different groups of people. And and I think that's really beneficial to our community to have these really vibrant discussions and and the ability to consider these different perspectives. So I'm more appreciative of it now than I was when I was uh, when I was younger. So I think the theme of our conversation today is just, I you know, as I've gotten older, I am more appreciative of a lot of the challenges that I had uh, gone through. And I'm much more comfortable being who I am because I can't be anybody else. And I'm most happy and most effective when I am being true to who I am. And, and I hope that the, those who are listening on to this podcast are uh, kind of um, not being too hard on themselves. And I hope they also... Um, have a journey that leads them to that place because I think it's a pretty darn good place to be. And also just how you've taken those challenges and made them really sort of the shining points in your life. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I've loved hearing your story. I'm sure our listeners have as well. And I can't wait to see you in person again. Yes, me too. Thank you so much, Heidi. And thank you to Jonah and June as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again. You've been listening to In the Pocket. If you'd like more information on Infala, check us out on Facebook or go to infala.com.